this is episode 148 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Stem Cell Ethics with Dr. Ubaka Obogu. Hey everyone, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Okay, my lovelies, listen to this. We got big news. Starting next episode, the Stem Cell Podcast is going to be coming at you with a new host. That's right, Dr. Arun Sharma, a senior research fellow at Cedar sinai who we interviewed in episode 146. He's going to be joining me and discussing all the latest developments in the stem cell research field each and every other week. Make sure to tune in for his inaugural episode in two weeks when we interview Dr. Stephen Silvasi, Senior Director for Hematopoietic Product Development at Stem Cell Technologies. But getting back to today, we have Dr. Ubaka Obogu from the University of Alberta on the podcast to talk about his work in health governance and science policy. And we've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news. That's coming up. But first, got to let you know, stem cell is hiring. Stem Cell Technologies, it's a world leader in developing services and tools for scientists working in cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research. United by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally, Stem Cell is a team of scientists helping scientists, and they're looking for creative, driven people to join their international team. Explore more than 80 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, quality and science communication, all at jobs.stemcell.com. You unemployed? Even if you are employed, you might find something better at stem cell, jobs.stemcell.com. Now on to the roundup. We're going to start with a story from my boy Irv, Irving Weissman, who's at Stanford. We talked to him about a month ago now at the ISSCR, I had about an hour-long conversation about this. What I'm about to tell you, you might actually find that in between weeks, in between episodes, we're going to be floating some of those conversations, but, you know, when it comes, it comes. I can't predict the future. Talk to stem cell tech. But I'm going to give you a little clue into that conversation with this roundup piece. This is a story he was talking about. It's a letter in Nature. It's about, you know, his whole don't eat me thing. Irv's famous for this don't eat me idea the cancer you know the cancer it's capable of evading clearance by macrophages through overexpression of these antiphagocytic surface proteins that Irv has dubbed don't eat me signals okay the, the most i think notable one of these is cd47 and monoclonal antibodies that antagonize this don't eat me signal um, keep it from interacting with the macrophage express receptors. They've demonstrated therapeutic potential in several cancers. The CD47, they've used these monoclonals against CD47. A lot of cancers have responded in the positive. You know, they, they go away. Um, now they get smaller, but there's, there's a lot of variability in the magnitude and durability of the response. Uh, and that suggests that maybe there's compensatory mechanisms, there's redundancy, and there might be other as yet unknown, don't eat me signals, right? So, of course, Irv's trying to get all the don't eat me's. He wants to knock them all down, get rid of the cancer. And this story is focused on CD24. Okay, why CD24? I'll tell you. It's known to interact with this Siglec 10 
okay, which is uh, expressed on innate immune cells. And it's known that interaction with this SIGLEC-10, it uh, dampens this damaging inflammatory responses. All right, so there's that. And there's also studies that dead up show that CD24 is highly expressed in a lot of solid tumors. So it seems to be upregulated. And as soon as you get these malignancies popping off, but the role in modulating tumor immune response has not really been shown. You know that it has something to do with the inflammatory, you know it's highly expressed in the tumors, but no one's made the connection explicitly yet. Step in, Irv. Uh, thinking, hey, so don't eat me. He's looking at ovarian cancer, triple negative breast cancer. All right, these are the killers among the most lethal diseases, period, affecting women, not just cancer. And there's not a lot of target therapies, a lot of metastases. So yeah, let's go to ovarian cancer, triple negative breast cancer. That's a good test case to try and figure out some more of these don't eat me's. They probably got a lot of don't eat me's. That's how they get through. Um, and what they find is that a lot of tumors overexpress the CD24, which has kind of been shown. Uh, but that also the tumor-associated macrophages in, you know, and around those tumors express high levels of SIGLEC10 the cognate receptor, right? And if you ablate genetically either CD24 or SIGLEC10, uh, or if you, you blockade the CD24 SIGLEC10 interaction using monoclonals in the vein of the whole CD47 therapeutic approach, you can robustly augment, that is, increase the phagocytosis of all the CD24 expressing human tumors that, are, that were tested in these xenografts, right? So... That's big. And also, you know, it manifests as reduced tumor growth in vivo, increased survival time in these mice that were bearing these, these xenografts. So I, I think you know, CD47 wasn't enough. It seems to be showing a positive effect. This uh, raises the visibility of CD24 as an alternative or as maybe an adjuvant. Maybe you go in with CD24 antibodies and CD47, knock out all those don't eat me's, cancers get et. Everybody's happy, most of all, Irv. I invite you guys to listen to that when it comes out because, you know, Irv, Irv Weissman, he'll tell you a story. He'll tell you a lot of stories, and he's had a long scientific career, fascinating. Guy goes deep. I got to tell you, deep. So listen up. If it comes up, listen up. Next, you know, we're going to stay at Stanford because they got some bright people over there. So let's talk about it. Here we're talking about heart disease, uh, coronary artery disease specifically. Um, and so, you know, we should, we should clarify that this cardiovascular disease is a whole constellation of things, right? But specifically, this kind of, the coronary artery disease is about atherosclerosis, right? And specifically, the risk there is that you have these unstable atherosclerotic lesions that rupture and trigger a thrombus, a clot, or a little blockage, right? And that ultimately leads to the infarction, oftentimes in the heart itself, myocardial infarction or stroke. Um, and so that's it. That's the problem. You block the vessel, right? But the, what's, what's blocking? If we could reduce all the little blockers out there, and that's, you know, when we talk about high cholesterol and coronary artery disease and you're getting all the kind of treatments there uh, with the stents, et cetera, that type of thing. That's what you're going after. Um, but the nature of the plaque is actually really relevant to disease, right? And vulnerable plaques, the ones that pop, pop out of the, into the vessel and then occlude, they're, they're characterized by a large necrotic lipid core with a thin overlying fibrous cap. 
and it's that fibrous cap that's prone to rupture. So in the context of atherosclerosis, the mediator of this is smooth muscle cells, okay? Smooth muscle cells are really, it's pretty, pretty well established, and I think there's a lot of proof showing that they're really the likely major contributor to both that necrotic core, the lipid core, as well as the fibrous cap. Uh, and the view currently is that in the context of atherosclerosis, you get these smooth muscle cells, these unique kind of pathological smooth muscle cells that develop into one of two distinct phenotypes, depending on the context, with very different consequences vis-a-vis -vis the stability of those plaques. In the one case, you get a pro-inflammatory dysfunctional macrophage-like cell, which is thought to destabilize the lesion, or on the brighter side, you get an extracellular matrix-producing synthetic, quote-unquote, smooth muscle cells that contribute to the protective fibrous cap, right? So they're kind of protective. They lock in the cap more, I guess. Okay, so, you know, despite this idea being prevalent, it's not really well established, right? And the, the phenotype of these pathological smooth muscle cells in vivo in the context of atherosclerosis and the influence of those cells on coronary artery disease risk, not been well established until now, until we get Thomas Curtamos's group, who's at Stanford, like I said. They uh, use single-cell seq to characterize the transcriptomic phenotype of the smooth muscle cells in vivo, all right? And so single-cell seq, of course, the whole point there is that they're looking at each one of these cells as its own little transcriptome, getting super high resolution of these atherosclerotic lesions, both in mouse and human arteries. And that's why it got up to Nature Medicine article is that it got into the human as well and found that there's a unique fibroblast-like cell that these cells transform into. They're calling them fibromyocytes. So it's interesting because <laughs> I think it's funny. They, they had like myofibroblast was the thing with the fibrosis, and now they have fibromyocytes, which is, I guess, their a more nuanced combo of fibroblasts and, and myocytes. But hey, fibromyocytes, newly coined, um, and the point there is that they don't become these classic, the expectation that they're going to have this macrophage phenotype, inflammatory phenotype, but they come become this other thing, fibromyocytes. And mechanistically, if you knock out TCF21, and why this is notable is because TCF21 is a gene that's been associated with cardio, uh, coronary artery disease. All right. So loss of function or mutation of TCF21, you get increased risk of coronary artery disease. And if you knock out TCF21 specifically in smooth muscle cells in mice, you markedly inhibit that pathological fibromyocyte phenotype, um, leads to the presence of fewer of those uh, within the lesions and fewer of those within the protective fibrous cap. Of the, of the lesion, okay? So you get less of these smooth muscle cells going in there and making that stuff in the atherosclerotic lesion. Also, when you look at the diseased human coronary artery, you see a lot of TCF21 expression uh, during this pathological smooth muscle cell phenotypic modulation. Um, and when you get higher levels of TCF21, it's associated with decreased coronary artery disease risk in human tissues that are relevant to coronary artery disease. So here we go. 
this kind of establishes a, a protective role for these smooth muscle cells, these fibromyocytes. They seem to be contributing to the stability of these lesions, right? Of these atherosclerotic lesions. And that seems to be, you know, specifically mediated by TCF21. TCF21 is good, stabilizing these lesions. You're, you know, you're eating bad foods, getting poor arteries, but if your lesions are tight, then maybe you might make it. All right, so TCF21, we need to reinforce that role, TCF21. Maybe helps us understand mechanistically how the, you know, what the disease risk is with these patients who have mutations in TCF21. Maybe we can compensate for that. Good show, Thomas. Very nice work out of Stanford, not surprising. I'm going next to a story in the skin. This is from Kim Jensen. I like this story because we also talked to Kim Jensen at the ISSCR. Who didn't we talk to? We talked to all the big hitters. Are you kidding me? We were just talking and talking and talking. This is a letter in Nature Cell Biology. You know, ISSCR was all about unpublished research this year in the presentation. So when we talked to Kim about this, we actually couldn't float that conversation because, you know, we don't want to blow up his spot there on the unpublished research, keep it in the embargo. But now that it's out... Boom! You can expect to hear that audio online at some point soon. We're going to post it. We're going to post it. Just you wait. One of these days. This story, it's about the sebaceous gland. So the sebaceous gland doesn't get a lot of play, all right? But it's, it's a big deal. The skin's very complex. It's a great model organism for, for, for just stem cells generally. That the skin's not just the skin, of course. You know, it's the skin and then it's the hair. And of course, it's the sebaceous gland. All right, so during hair follicle formation and skin development, you get the primitive follicles uh, elongating into the underlying dermis. And during that process, you get these specialized epidermal cells that form the sebaceous gland. Okay, so that's where they're specified during development. And then in the homeostatic epidermis, just, you know, when it's kicking it, the, these ter there's terminally differentiated, so the, the derivatives of those progenitors, they're called sebocytes, um, within the sebaceous gland, they make sebum, you know? And the sebum, why do we have sebum? To lubricate and waterproof the epithelium. And yeah, it's not, it's not a small thing. The sebaceous gland is essential to the skin, and when you have gland dysfunction, it's debilitating, all right? There's a lot of diseases, also cancers that arise from the sebaceous gland. So it's important to understand, don't sleep on the sebaceous gland. Um, so we got to understand, you know, when we talk about dysfunction, we got to understand, well, what's normal function? We got to understand where these, where these glands come from, how they're made. And fate mapping studies have shown that the sebaceous gland is maintained as an autonomous compartment during homeostasis. So it's its own little thing. Uh, and although there's been a lot of models that have pro proposed for sebaceous gland maintenance, a general consensus is lacking, both in how it forms and then also how it's maintained and how you get uh, kind of oncogenic transformation, how oncogene activation can derail the normal behavior. So Kim Jensen is at the University of Copenhagen, Denmark, a charming fellow. Uh, I know from talking to him. Very charming, very happy guy. He should be happy. He's popping off nature papers like nothing. Uh, his group, they applied a large-scale quantitative fate mapping, like comprehensive fate mapping out the gills 
in order to find the patterns of sulfate behavior during sebaceous gland development and maintenance. Um, what they show is that it develops, the sebaceous gland develops from a defined number of lineage-restricted progenitors that undergo ultimately an expansion phase to form these equipotent progenitors um, and that then transition into this phase of just homeostasis, turnover, homeostasis and renewing the gland as the skin turns over. All right, and then they also find that if you express this oncogene KRAS, a kind of constitutive active form of this, that you get release from the kind of, there's a kind of architectural, mechanical uh, constraints that govern the size of these glands um, from the stroma and, you know, from the surrounding tissue there that spatially and mechanically restricted. And when you activate KRAS, you release those constraints and you get unbridled gland expansion. Uh, and that the, the, the way this works, it's not a, a effect on cell division. It's not mitogenic per se. The way you get this unbridled expansion is that you, you, you uh, institute this constant bias where you, you're just shifting the fate of these equipotent progenitors. You get a constant fate bias, um, but you keep the cell division rate present, I mean, um, constant. And then you're just shifting the bias toward the sebaceous gland fate. So this, uh, this whole, you know, the bottom line there is to provide some insight into normal development of the sebaceous gland, kind of the sequence, how you form this progenitor, and then there's a massive proliferation to these equipotent things that then govern, run the turnover of the homeostasis. But also in the context of kind of oncogenic transformation, you understand now the mechanism of tumor progression as well as just gland dysfunction, how glands go awry and uh, how the cells within those glands reach such a state of imbalance. So it's just a little bit of insight into what makes the cells tick in the sebaceous gland in normal and pathological conditions. No big deal, but it is a big deal, people. So listen up. Next story, we're going to talk about uh, something I read about in science translational medicine just a few days ago. And I was reading about it because I was, you know, perusing the work of one Jennifer Adair, who's quite prolific. We talked to her a couple weeks ago. And so after I hadn't got enough, I said, I, I want to know what she's about. So I looked her up. And of course, it was a story that was published the day before. She's in the middle. But still, you know, she had a lot to do with the culmination. Check out that episode if you get a chance. She's charming. Um, this story is led by Hans Peter Keim. He's also at the Hutch with Jen. Um, this story about uh, hemoglobinopathies, all right? So, you know, hemoglobinopathies. You probably recognize them more as like sickle cell disease, beta thalassemia. Yeah, they're the most common of all monogenetic, uh, monogenic disorders. All right? They have a tremendous public health burden, and they're all effectively caused by mutations in the, the gene beta globin, all right? And now the way you treat it Although there's a lot of stuff like uh, on the, in the pipeline with uh, CRISPR and genetic modification, etc. And this is kind of one of those stories. But as of now, the only clinical curative treatment for hemoglobinopathies is allogeneic stem cell transplant, bone marrow transplant, right? Which is insane in terms of the risk of complications and also it's not a lot of availability. So considering this is huge, huge you know, very, very, very common, 
uh, it's a major limitation, the fact that we're, we're dependent on allogeneic stem cell transplant for a cure. But there's a wrinkle there, and that is that there's some patients that, that just naturally are able to compensate for these uh, hemoglobinopathies. And the way they do this is that they have uh, continued to maintain persistent expression of gamma globin and gamma globin associates with alpha globin to form the major fetal hemoglobin. All right, so usually the fetal hemoglobin, while it comes up early in life, then it's suppressed, and then you get to the adult globins, right? I mean, early in life, I mean like early in fetal development. All right, and then you transition to your adult globins for most of your life. But um, this, there's this condition where you have this persistence. It's called hereditary persistence of uh, fetal hemoglobin. Uh, that's a good name. And it's benign, you know, there's no downside there. But in patients that he have hemoglobinopathies, it can be, you know, it can rescue their, the deficiency in their normal and their adult globins. Uh, and the, the, the etiology of this hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin, it comes down to single nucleotide variants or large deletions that are generally in the beta globin locus. Um, and where they are and, and what degree they delete and what, you know, type of regulatory elements they delete dictates the degree of uh, fetal hemoglobin reactivation. But the point here is like, hey, we have all these people with the hemoglobinopathies. If we could reactivate their fetal hemoglobin with like a relatively straightforward approach, that would be huge. Uh, and the, the one they focused on was a, a very potent activator of fetal hemoglobin that's naturally occurring. It's a 13 nucleotide deletion in the globin promoter. Uh, and it's in a region that contains this motif that's recently been identified as a binding site for a fetal hemoglobin repressor, right? So it makes sense. If you can mutate the repressor of this fetal hemoglobin, boom, reactivate or failed suppression and therefore you get renewed activation of the fetal hemoglobin and you can get compensation and rescue in these patients, right? So that's what the group was going after, uh, Hans Peter's group. This is in non-human primates as a proof of principle. They did CRISPR-Cas9 on a non-human primate and they targeted their hematopoietic stem cells, did autologous uh, transplantation, so took out their blood, put it back into them after targeting. And that resulted in up to 30% engraftment of gene editing cells for over a year. So the cells got in to a large degree and stayed. Um, and these cells effectively and stably reactivated the fetal hemoglobin. So it looks like they were doing what, what you wanted them to do to a large degree. And there was another nuance there where if they edited a highly enriched form of stem cells, they could, uh, it allowed for tenfold reduction in the number of cells they had to transplant, and therefore, you know, much less reagent and apparatus needed to, targeted, to target the cells in terms of the CRISPR and Cas9. So I think this is like Jen Adair, and you should listen to her conversation because I think what they're working towards here is making this thing practical. And this is an example of that. Like, they want to make it efficient. They want to, instead of doing a whole transplant, thought, they just, you know, if they can target your the own patient, minimize the risk, maybe the turnaround to be quicker. I imagine some point in the future, the ideal will be presented to just target the cells in situ in the bone marrow 
Therefore, you don't even have to take out the cells and target them in vitro. You don't have that expansion effect. So, yeah, I think this is one of those pragmatic approaches to addressing disease, whereas maybe t people are talking about big deal and correction and da-da-da. Here's kind of a hack, right? Forget about the deficient globin. Let's just compensate. Let's just, you know, renew some factor that it doesn't do anything bad and it can co compensate for the loss of the good. Great idea. Brilliant. Practical. I see it being, you know, one of the early, early treatments uh, for a disease that affects millions. So pretty cool. Last story. This is about another disease that affects millions and it's continuing to expand in its purview. We're talking about diabetes. Oh, this is a unique form. You know, type 1 diabetes autoimmune, right? Immune system just bangs out the beta cells. And then there's type 2. It's more like a metabolic syndrome where insulin responsiveness goes down and then the beta cells are essentially useless, right? But there's another type of diabetes. It's called monogenic diabetes, also uh, known as maturity onset diabetes of the young. All right, this accounts for 5% of cases that are noted in children. Uh, and it's most often characterized by heterozygous dominant mutations in genes that are important for pancreatic beta cell development and or function. So a whole spate of genes uh, that are involved in pancreatic function and or development can manifest as MODI. You screw, you know, this maturity onset diabetes of the young called MODI, um, can come from a defect in any one of these genes. Uh, the most common of those, though, is um, caused by heterozygous mutation in the transcription factor, hepatic nuclear factor 1, HNF1-alpha. Hepatic nuclear factor 1-alpha, HNF1-alpha. Uh, and in these patients that have this heterozygous HNF1-alpha mutation, they have beta cell dysfunction, hyperglycemia, because the efficiency of insulin release in response to blood sugar, glucose, not, not good, not efficient. So they end up becoming hyperglycemic and all the sequelae, not good. Uh, and you know, understanding what the mechanism there of the pathophysiology of that specific HNF1A related Modi, it's limited because you just don't have enough patient samples, right? Or you can't get at the beta cells in these patients. Um, so, yeah, we're limited. And, of course, go to mice. Yeah, go to mice. We go to mice. I think, you know, the, the bloom is off the rose with the mice. They don't really do the trick. In this case in particular, mice with heterozygous mutations in HNF1-alpha, they're totally healthy, healthy, right? And if you homozygous, null, you can, they have a diabetic phenotype, but only on specific genetic backgrounds. So, like, clearly the relationship between the rodent and the human, it's thin. Um, so, of course, yes, if we want to really understand what's going on mechanistically in the human, we've got to use human cells. Enter disease modeling, pluripotent stem cells. We love to talk about that stuff on this show. Combine it with a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the classic genome editing that we also love to talk about on this show. So it's desirable, right? We want to do a human system, of course. CRISPR, use that to genetically modify embryonic stem cells, ablate one or two. So either homozygote or heterozygote, null mutation of HNF1-alpha, 
and then differentiation of these cells into pancreatic beta cells. This was done by Paul Gadu. He's at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, also known as CHOP. And what they found, he's done a lot of these studies, by the way. Paul, he's been doing this kind of genetic basis of maturity onset diabetes at a young. He's kind of taken them one by one, looked at a, a bunch of other genes. Um, so, yeah, he's taken another one off the list here, showing that that what you do, what you get when you knock out uh, HNF1-alpha in the human cells is you get failures, of course. And this is uh, failure to repress alpha cell gene expression and failure to maintain endocrine cell function or regulate cellular metabolism. So it's, it looks like HNF1-alpha is providing this repressive function that's permissive for beta cell differentiation, amongst other things. They also identified a human specific so this is something that doesn't it's not in, around in the mouse at all illustrating and underscoring the importance of a human system they identify the human specific link rna which is called link a l-i-n-k-a uh, and showed that it was a hnf1 alpha target that's necessary for normal mitochondrial respiration so this is a unique wrinkle that mitochondrial respiration within the beta cells Maybe uh, something going on there. Maybe another target um, provides some insight into how the HNF1-alpha gene may be playing its role uh, in normal cells and how dysfunction may be uh, manifesting in this monogenic diabetes. So that's that. You know, we ran the span. All diseases of the West, really. Yeah, not all of them, but a lot. But we're making progress in this roundup today. A lot of good work. And now we're on to the interview. But before we do that, I got to ask, do you study mesenchymal stromal cells, also known as MSCs? There are currently over 350 active clinical trials using MSCs, but these cells have long been a source of confusion and exploitation. Leaders in the field are now calling for better methods for MSC identification and characterization. To learn more, read about the latest commentaries and summaries of key MSC publications at www.stemcell.com slash MSC updates. We've talked about MSCs uh, on the show. We had a great uh, interview. We've had a bunch of great interviews with all kinds of people talking about MSCs, but you can augment that information with what you find at stemcell.com. Get after it. Go have a look. Next up, Ubaka. Can't wait to talk to him about ethics in stem cells. All right, you guys. Today we have Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu, who is associate professor in the faculties of law and pharmacy, as well as in pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Alberta. It's a cross appointment, very unique. He's a CATS research fellow in health law and science policy. Dr. Obogu has a private practice, of course, he's a lawyer, but he's uh, also got a scholarly work that's focused broadly on the ethical, legal, and societal implications of novel and emerging biomedical research and healthcare technologies, um, and also focused on the challenges associated with existing medical and public health systems, practices, and infrastructures. Dr. Obogu, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's our pleasure. Why don't we start by, you know, this is a different kind of hang we have today. Usually we're talking to scientists who are, you know, doing the nitty gritty at the bench. You're kind of uh, at another level overseeing broadly 
all kinds of innovation and the implications and impact that it has on society. Looking at the website, it said your interests, broadly speaking, quote, are points of confrontation between ethics, morality, economics, and law in relation to the governance of novel and controversial healthcare technologies. Why don't you elaborate on that for us to start? Okay, I'll be happy to. So, uh, as many of your listeners probably know, uh, much of the work that they're doing now uh, will, uh, as, as far as they hope, uh, eventually make it to uh, the clinic or to the market. Uh, much of the, the bench research that's being done now will inevitably, is inevitably being done uh, to end up uh, somewhere in society and to be useful to patients and the members of the public. And so uh, there's a, a huge range of interests that intersect in trying to bring this uh, science and technologies to, to the people, if you will, in trying to translate them clinically. Uh, and uh, the interesting thing about uh, areas of research like stem cell research is that they uh, often come in contact with all kinds of societal values and interests. Uh, and there's this huge uh, contestation happening uh, between what scientists do and other interests that uh, exist in society. So the, the work that I do is really to sort of uh, tease out all of these factors and interests that are implicated um, between the research and, and society, uh, between science and society, and to try and make sense of it. So the way I like to describe what I do is that I am there to provide, uh, to study and provide guidance on the points of confrontation, engagement, and intersection between science and society. Uh, and many of the things we're gonna be talking about today uh, sit in this sort of, um, at, at these points of confrontation that, that, that I'm talking about. Um, so for example, uh, if you think about uh, scientists who are working right now on ways uh, to develop treatments out of uh, stem cells, uh, these scientists confront a variety of issues uh, everything from the, the morality of what they do, uh, the ethics of actually doing that research, how it's going to be translated clinically, uh, and uh, some of the issues we're starting to see recently, uh, the different ways that regulators might look at these products and try to make sense of what categories to fit them into and how to regulate them. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also the question of whether governments will pay for it, uh, whether health payers will pay for these te this therapies, uh, and if, if they do pay for it, who is it going to be used for? Uh, would it benefit everyone? Would it benefit some populations and not others? So there's a variety of issues that arise uh, around stem cell research and other forms of regenerative medicine research. Uh, and my job is to try and understand and make sense of all of these uh, issues and advise uh, persons who are, are doing the work as well as governments and regulators and, and of course, uh, patients and members of the public on the different ways to sort through these issues and make sense of them from an ethical, legal standpoint. Yeah, this is a great uh, opportunity for us on the show because, as I said, we're usually talking to the scientists who are doing the bench work. Um, and if you ask them, I would say for the most part, in most you know controversial or lightning rod issues, they'd be kind of pro on the pro side of it. So yeah, we're kind of in an echo chamber when we talk to other scientists. So now we can have an outside perspective and I think a prism through which we can look at these issues 
um, in a more balanced way. So we're going to get into that and unpack that with you, if you don't mind. Let's start with something that I think was a huge issue. And I think this is uh, uh, kind of the, the, what I've noted um, with stem cells during my training uh, and professional career is that it's a bit of a moving target ethically because, of course, society is all for regenerative approaches to disease, right? I mean, that's easy to get on board with, but it's at what cost, right? And, and when I was being trained, the cost was destruction of embryos. In order to make embryonic stem cell lines, you had to destroy embryos, and it was a political, bioethical lightning rod, and there was a lot of controversy there and whether we should um, and there were some restrictions and regulations on that. And then kind of it, it, it kind of faded with the technology um, of iPS cells. What's your take on that? I mean, is it still an issue? One, like uh, derivation of new stem cell lines. Of course, you know, if we are going to derive, it still involves embryo destruction, so-called. Uh, is the debate still active? Um, or is it, you know, like many things, it, it, does, the, does it just fade away never to really come into the fore again? So I, I wouldn't say, that, that's a loaded question, by the way. There's so many <laughs> ways to answer it. Uh, I wouldn't say the issue has faded away. I, I will say instead that I think people are tired of the controversy and IPS cells have provided uh, some way out of the controversy, at least not to make it front and center anymore. But, but I think uh, the notion that embryonic stem cell research is no longer relevant uh, is one that I, I will question. And there's two reasons why I'll question that. The first is the issue was on some level about what degree of control should the government have over science, right? That, that's a sort of a bigger, uh, big picture type of issue. Uh, what what gives a society legitimate legitimate grounds to actually intervene with scientific research and with scientific freedom? So that's one thing that 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 uh, embryonic the research on embryos sort of invokes for me, uh, because um, it doesn't matter whether it's embryos or anything else. Uh, science, for the most part, is done in conditions where it's not very closely and tightly regulated. And, and up until very recently, we did not see much over the course of you know, the history of science uh, and scientific research. We did not see much direct government intervention, intervention in research in the way we saw with embryonic stem cells. So th that's the first question. To what extent can we as a society go? And in what ways can we empower our governments and the state to actually intervene in scientific research. So I'm going to park that question for now. Uh, but the second one is, so if you talk to uh, uh, si si people who do uh, stem cell, embryonic stem cell research, or who do stem cell research, or someone like you, for example, um, it, there, there's an understanding among scientists that embryonic stem cells are still the gold standard. Uh, and I don't think anyone will advocate for if, if you put aside a controversy, let's say it wasn't controversial, I don't think anyone would advocate for abandoning that area of research because we have iPS cells. I think it serves as an important gold standard with which to assess um, uh, how iPS cell, iPS cell research is, is proceeding. Uh, and, uh, and we need that to be able to sort of assess iPS cells uh, as a way of, uh, uh, of 
creating stem cell therapies. So these two points, I think, make the issue one that is still relevant. The fact that it's an example of government intervention in research or state intervention in research that should raise some concern for persons who are scientists, as well as for persons who know the value of science to society. Uh, but also the fact that if you use, if the controversy uh, has created an outlet in the form of IPS cells, it is still not clear to me and to many scientists that we should abandon embryonic stem cells because they represent the gold standard mm. for research. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's, it's kind of clear, at least at the time, it seemed pretty clear what the, what the issue was, that it was mm -hmm. destruction of an embryo. It was very mm -hmm. easy to identify the issue. Um, but for another example of uh, some controversy in stem cells is with like interspecies chimerism. And I worked a right. little bit with that, and that was another lightning rod. But I think it's a different type of thing and a different type of debate or controversy because there it's not a readily identifiable issue. Mm -hmm. It's the potential, you know, or it's, it's, a, it's a known unknown or unknown, whatever you want to call it. It's the idea that, oh, no, what if that it contributes to the germline and then you have human sperm and a mouse mm -hmm. or what if it contributes to the brain and you have a mouse that has human thoughts um is it you do you think that that's uh you know of course all these debates are relevant but is is there a different way that you consider those debates uh where it's really the the potential for an issue that isn't even clear uh, is it is the do we need to uh, uh, approach those debates in a different way, in your opinion? Absolutely. So, uh, and this is sometimes hit to scientists all the time. Uh, many scientists seem to think, you know, um, what we do is, you know, we'll go to our labs and we do all this research. We, we come up with all these ideas uh, and all these interesting um, outputs. Uh, and that's what we really want to do. But they don't realize how much many of these uh, much of what they do is subject to a variety of um, influences, including those that come from persons who don't actually understand what is going on with the research. I, I feel like many of these debates that we're having over, uh, you know, embryonic stem cell research over interspecies uh, creations uh, comes mainly from a disconnect between how scientists understand the research and how those who hear about it understand it, those who are non, not scientists. Now, of course, the media plays a role in this. Whenever the media says, oh, this is what scientists are doing, they sort of try to communicate to a lay audience, and that lay audience picks up on something and may not fully understand the implications of what they are picking up on. I teach a course uh, on this uh, to my students, and I, and I try to explain to them uh, what embryonic stem cell research actually entails, for example. So I explained to them about embryogenesis and at what stage scientists want to actually use the cells. Uh, and it will talk about technology and should really be calling what scientists are working on at that stage an embryo or not. Uh, and this divides opinion in my class all the time. There are people who feel that from the point of fertilization, you have an embryo. And there are those who are very pro-science and say, well, we don't have an embryo until much later. Uh, in the in in the in the state in much later stages of embryogenesis, and I think all of that misunderstanding of what's going on contributes to the public debate and controversy around uh, around this. Now, it, the, the way I see it, 
if the public actually understood this the way scientists did, maybe there will be less controversy. But I also feel that we're oftentimes arguing about the wrong things. It is not as if embryos don't get destroyed. They do all the time. Uh, so, for example, if somebody goes to uh, uh, an IVF clinic, you know, and goes through the uh, assisted reproductive uh, production process, uh, any embryos that they don't use for reproduction can be discarded. Those embryos are destroyed, of course. Um, but I think what makes this issue one that people care about is that you're now saying we're going to use it for research. And I think it's, it's that people don't associate a value to research that allows them to see that as something that is useful and beneficial to society enough to demand destruction of the embryo. Uh, and so, you know, they, they fail to lose sight of the fact that if somebody actually went through IVF, they could actually discard those embryos uh, and, you know, will make nothing of it. Uh, so I, I think there's misunderstanding around that. And the same thing goes with interspecies creations as well. Uh, very recently, uh, a group of us in, in Canada uh, came up with this. We wrote this paper. We, we did a series of workshops and wrote this paper where we said, look, when it comes to research, uh, you have to see that there's some value in, in doing research. And where we should really draw the line is between research and reproductive use. That is the proper line. Uh, as long as you're doing research, it should be okay to do research on things like embryos and interspecies creations. What will not be okay, uh, because we don't know how that's going to pan out, is reproductive use. That's the proper line. Uh, because anything that you fear uh, is not really something that will be manifest in the research context, especially if you put very stringent regulations around the research, mm -hmm. especially if you govern it right. What most people fear is that you're going to do something that is going to affect the human germline uh, and be passed on to generations. Uh, and I think drawing a line that separates the research from those kinds of activities is a good one. But of course, the minute you say that, there are people who raise stronger objections. So there are people who say, for example, all of this is yucky. Mm. And I'm not just saying that. That's actually a known <laughs> ethical objection. You know, it's it's all yucky. It's you know something called the yuck factor. We don't you know it, it looks messy. We don't care about it. We don't want it to happen. There are people who say, well, scientists are not playing God. Mm. Um, you know, and they shouldn't be doing that. Uh, there are those who say, well, under no circumstances whatsoever should you deal with an embryo this way. Uh, and there are those who have you know, fears that are larger than reality. And all of these objections are things you can't actually argue with because they're not objections that are grounded in reason for the most part. They're objections that are grounded in fear. Uh, I think that's where, you know, the um, most people, you know, so, so say, look, we're drawing a hard line and we're not going to allow it. And for those people, there's really nothing you can say to them that will make the research okay. But for the ones who are willing to think of this rationally, you can draw a good line between research and reproduction that separates, um, you know, valid, well-regulated research from all kinds of crazy things that could happen if you start to use this reproductively. Yeah, well, you you mentioned it, you brought it up, so I got to get into it. This germline thing with the John right. Kehei in China, I think this is exactly what we're talking about, right? right? So, obviously, I don't think we need to to discuss that that was a real breach of any kind of ethical oversight, as well as you know whatever was governing John Kehei there. I, I, probably ethics wasn't the first thing on his mind, 
Um, but you know, it's it's happened. Okay, there's these right. twins and maybe a third baby coming, um, and they're not going anywhere, right? And it 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 makes me think about you know from an ethics perspective, you know, there's these horrid historically experiments in concentration camps. There's the Tuskegee Airmen, which is, you know, on one extreme. And then there's like the kind of everyday lax IRBs and oversight protocols in like the 70s and 80s and, and throughout the decades of science where essentially you would just do what you want with the patient material. You'd let them know the whole idea of informed consent was pretty lax. So like, what do you do with the research? I think it'd be easy to say, you know, the concentration camps and all that stuff like that's that's you know anathema we just not even take the insight gleaned from that research the junk hey it's another thing where it's like well we need to protect the patients but like there's really important um information that can be salvaged from these horrible ethical breaches mm -hmm. what do you do with it when you have the data there do we just turn away and say we don't want to encourage that or do we take you know try and salvage what we can from that and then learn from our mistake and increase the oversight well certainly the last thing you said we need to learn from our mistakes and and definitely have very strong oversight systems but i think we need to make clear um two different things at play here uh, the first is the question of whether or not we should do the research at all right should we do research or not do research that's the question that's usually engaged when it comes to things like embryonic stem cell research, research on interspecies creations, uh, you know, using CRISPR in, in certain ways. It's the question of should we do research or not, right? That's different from the question of should we do research ethically or not, mm. right? I think on the second question, we should be uncompromising, right? Uh, as you rightly noted, um, we too often forget that science can be done in a bad way. Uh, they, and as you rightly noted, there's too many examples of that. And I think what that calls for is strong caution and strong regulation of the science. As I've said before, uh, you allow the science to proceed, but you regulate it. Mm. But on the first question, it's a question of in or out. In which case, it's not about regulating the science. It's about, do we even do it at all? Mm. And that's the one we need to have much more rational thinking around. Um, because, you know, I think what Stephen Pinker has said, and, you know, my fellow uh, ethicists and <laughs> people who do work I do are going to hit me for actually bringing up Stephen Pinker. <laughs> but he once argued that science has done so much for humanity and that because of that, science should get the benefit of the doubt and shouldn't be obstructed by, by regulations. Now, I think what he was saying uh, and this is a generous view of what I think Pinker was saying, is that uh, on this in or out question, we should really give science the benefits of the doubt and allow it to proceed. Uh, but the way he put it forward, it seemed as if he was saying we shouldn't have regulations at all of science. I, I don't agree with that. I think we should allow most, if not all, science to proceed, but regulate it stringently, unless it's the kind of science where we know that there's no way to regulate it without causing harms. Uh, so if you go back to the, the hay example that you brought up, hay is interesting because uh, you know we just I just did a paper with a colleague Erica Kleiderman, where we looked at uh, Chinese regulations and there's actually regulations in China that that would have stopped what he did, but you know hay uh, 
you know, he's been described as a rogue scientist. And it's kind of person, you know, he set his mind to it and he did it, right? Uh, and there are people like that in science. But we forget that there are also, uh, you know, labs across the world where people are not doing what he did. Now, what he did got a lot of play, but we also forget that many scientists came out after he did it and condemned it and said, let's put a moratorium on this. Mm. Scientists don't wake up in the morning and going to work looking to do things that are, you know, whack, right? <laughs> um, for the most part, there are people like you and I who just want to do their jobs the, the way they know best. But the way they know best sometimes might engage certain values that we care about that they're not thinking about. It might engage issues of consent. It might engage uh, issues of fairness and justice. And because scientists are human, they can't think of all these things all the time. And because they're not trained in it, even if they thought about it, they might not actually know how to go about answering some of the questions that are raised by the work they do. That's where the strong regulations come in. But I think that's different from saying, oh, because I feel life begins mm -hmm. at realization, uh, because I, I think people shouldn't play God, or because I think destruction of embryos is so wrong, we shouldn't have the research at all, even if we can show that there's some benefit to doing the research. So for me, I think it's always about balancing the risks, the benefits, uh, and using that as a way to assess whether or not we allow the research to go forward, uh, but also being mindful of how to regulate it in such a way as to address some of these historical harms that you talked about, the Tuskegee's and the, the, you know, the Nazi research, keeping that in mind and keeping that front and center, uh, but not spending our time debating what's in or what's out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it occurs to me as you're talking about it, like it's 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 for us to decide as a society. Right. We have to have this debate. We have to have the discussion. We have to have all views um, entertained and acknowledged uh, as many as we can uh, mm. incorporate. But then there's this notion of like the unknown unknown. Right. And I think you, right. you do a lot of work with the assisted reproduction uh, specifically, you know, advising on embryo, egg, sperm, donor, surrogacy. And this, I think, is is really interesting and a fascinating um, example of kind of unknown unknowns and the confluence of multiple technologies. So we're writing the book on all this stuff in terms of ethical and regulatory. And then kind of, you know, donor, surrogacy, all this thing, and donation of gametes. And then you know, in comes like genomics and 23andMe, and there's a whole other, you know, there's all this other information that we can glean that may, you know, we didn't know, but may betray the protections that were assumed to these donors. So it, it seems kind of like whatever we ascribe, whatever ethical regulatory apparatus, it's always going to be provisional because we need to reassess as the technology moves forward. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. And, and I, I think th that point is key. We need to spend time doing the hard work of being nimble with our regulations, you know, because all these issues as they come forward, we have to be able to get on, on top of things and address them. But when we spend time debating, you know, what do we allow, not allow, then we do less work on the regulatory side where we are actually monitoring all of these things and saying, how do we best respond to them? Uh, now, I think that's what happened in all the time we spent debating about whether or not embryonic stem cells are in or out, right? Um, many countries around the world fail to develop 
regulations to actually govern the conduct of the research. And that's why we're seeing a ton of issues now that fall into the regulatory space and governments are playing catch up. Uh, and so I'll give you some examples of some of these issues that have come up uh, that we, we haven't found, quite found good answers to. Uh, and I think part of that is that we'll spend so much time uh, debating these higher order questions around what's in or what's out. So one of the issues that is front and center in the field right now, at least for people who do what I do, is the question of um, people who very prematurely take this science and convert into into therapies and make it available to the public without much scientific evidence of safety or efficacy, right? So this uh, uh, early to market uh, approaches that we're seeing around the world. Um, so that that's one example of something that you know um, is happening in the stem cell space. It's happening in the genomic space. You know, there have been criticisms of companies like 23andMe who you know take. Uh, you know, an idea and commercialize it. Hmm. Very recently, um, I was contacted by a report reporter who who was um, doing a story on a company out of Toronto uh, called Aiken that was uh, uh, selling to people uh, this service where they'll freeze your cells. Hmm. You know, just <laughs> you know, like your skin cell. They'll freeze it for you if you pay them a fee. And, and the idea being that your, your cells when you're young uh, are better than your cells when you're old. And sometime in the future, we're going to have iPS cell technology perfected. And so we can take your young skin cells that we froze, uh, uh, unfreeze them, and derive some iPS cells from it mm. and use that uh, to develop personalized therapy for you. Now, this is, to my mind, completely bonkers because there's so many things going around here uh, in that idea that have not even made it anywhere to realization scientifically. There's the idea of personalized medicine. There's the idea of iPS cells being used therapeutically. There's the idea that you know younger cells are better than older cells. Mm. So much noise, but that that all that comes from you know the fact that people have now taken this idea and they've turned it into uh, a, a product and they're starting to sell it. And we're starting to see this in many many areas. Another issue uh, that is front and center in my mind right now is uh, the fact that much of this research is happening around things that will actually benefit many populations in the world, right? Um, if you talk to many scientists working in the, in the West today or in the global North, uh, their, their, disease can, their, their candidate diseases that are focusing on, the work that they're doing, much of it focuses on things that are going to benefit people in the global north and wouldn't really do much for people in the global south. Uh, and there's a huge sort of fairness and justice issue around this, uh, which we can address through ethics. There's ways to design projects ethically. There's way to pick projects ethically to ensure that you actually spread the benefits around and globally that we're not doing now, that we're not thinking about now. And that's because we spend so much time on these higher order questions instead of thinking of, how do we actually regulate the science as it is happening now? And, and I think we do need to sort of bring our attention back to that. We need to bring our attention back to um, actual regulation of issues that arise in research, uh, because I think that's that's what's going to be beneficial to society as well as to scientists. That's not to say that there are not some areas of research 
that should raise um, moral questions or demand our, our attention in terms of uh, whether or not they should proceed or not. I, I certainly think that many many areas of research that have to do with uh, reproduction, you know, so for example, reproductive cloning, mm -hmm. uh, not that anyone is doing that now, but you know, if someone were to set to do that, or you know, the use of CRISPR uh, uh, for the germline, I think those are things that we, we can't turn our attention to and debate, is it time to allow it? I, I'm not saying ban it, I'm just saying, let's think about, should we be allowing it now? Is there a reason to do it mm -hmm. now? And what are the risks of doing it? Now, now the one thing that anyone who uh, follows science will know, if you historicize science, the one thing you'll know is that we eventually do it. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, anytime a new technology is introduced, uh, the first thing you get is repugnance. You know, people recoil. It doesn't matter what it is. If you think about when the iPad first came out, or sorry, <laughs> iPod first came out, yeah. you know, I, you know, people said, "Oh, we're going to grow tumors in our brains for having music, you know, mm -hmm. too close to our heads in this way." Um, you know, who knows what this little black thing is going to do to to our bodies? There are people who think cell phones are going to cause cancer. There's all kinds of things around uh, every technological development, uh, but eventually. We, we, we come to some kind of acceptance where we then start to build principles and, uh, and rules to articulate the vision properly and regulate the vision properly. Uh, and so I think having this reaction where we say, we're going to ban it and it's never going to happen, it's not a useful one. What we should instead, instead consider is, is it time? Mm. And why are you doing it? And if there's no reason to be doing it now, and I do think that for many of these reproductive uses, there's really not a need that needs to be addressed. And if there's a need, then it is probably uh, not one that um, cannot be addressed. That's not a met. You know, it, it can be addressed through other ways. Hmm. So I, I don't think we really need to get into these things now uh, for that reason, not, not because of some kind of so moral proclamation that some kinds of research are good and some are evil. Mm -hmm. It's just about whether or not we should be doing it, whether we need to be doing it. And you talked about, you alluded to it in terms of like, you know, unmet need globally. There's a mm -hmm. lot of unmet need that like really this cutting edge technology that we're talking about, like you said, it's not really practical. Uh, we mm -hmm. talked to Jen Adair uh, last episode and she was talking you know, what a recognition that she had early on was that the approach for like she was doing gene modification of hematopoietic stem cells in, in patients. And she wanted to bring the technology to Africa. So she did like mm -hmm. a lentivire thing in a box that was modular. You could set up in any clinic. But what she realized ultimately was that it's not really, you can throw as much technology you want at the thing, but ultimately you have to recognize the limitation on the patient. In this case, these are patients that can't afford, you know, in time or money to come into the clinic have their blood drawn, have a gene right. modified, and then come back two weeks later with an infusion and chemo. Like, there's just not, it's not practical in that case. So like, it, it, like you were saying there, it seems like mm -hmm. we're, we're at the cutting edge. We're all about curing the West. And mm -hmm. the real, you know, unmet need in the world, we could do a lot more, uh, you know, for disease just by curing malaria. So right. what, do you think there's a kind of, and I, I, I would predict that you would agree, but... 
like there's like not an unfair, but a kind of imbalanced allocation of resources because we're so consumed by the technology and the cutting edge. But if we really wanted to do good, we'd throw a lot more money down the ladder. You know what I mean? How do yeah. we shift the the kind of perspective? How do we draw more attention to to those diseases down the ladder that aren't as sexy or not as cutting right. edge? So I don't know if you can sense my excitement, but this is a topic I'm actually currently working on. So I'm very excited to talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> um, so uh, first thing, I completely agree with that perspective. Uh, and, you know, I mean, from the, the scientist you spoke to uh, your, your last episode, it actually sort of drives the point home. Uh, but I'll add one more layer. Uh, these are maybe places where there are no hospitals even hmm. <laughs> to come to. Uh, I, I just uh, did a, a survey of what happened uh, during the, the first Ebola crisis from 2013 to 2016 in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and what, what we found from that survey is that while the, the global north, the West was you know, sort of obsessed to some extent with finding a vaccine for Ebola, uh, there are people these people don't actually have hospitals to go to. <laughs> uh, so they will congregate at health centers where they just spread around the disease. They, they, wow. There's no healthcare system in place right? And the disease spread that way while we're looking for a vaccine mm. uh, uh, be because there's just no healthcare system. And you will think, okay, maybe after that, after, after that, we'll learn the lesson that maybe what we need to do is focus on building healthcare systems and not on technological fixes. Uh, but no, we have an Ebola crisis in, in, in the Congo right now, and it's the same mistake all over again. They still talk about a vaccine, uh, but you know nobody's dealing with, again, the lack of a healthcare system, the conflict and poverty, and all the things that get people to the stage where they are affected by disease like that. So I do think we, we need to pay some attention to conditions under which the technologies we develop can thrive and benefit everyone. Mm. But we're not doing enough of that. Uh, a, a very good example of that is recently a study that came out in Cell, I believe, uh, which showed that uh, majority of the studies, genetic studies occurring in the world, are occurring uh, on Western populations. So it, what you have in, in the genetic, genetic databases are just uh, genetic information of people from the West and is being done by Western researchers, I shouldn't say West, European mainly, mm. right? And the, the authors concluded that putting aside the methodological issues with that, putting aside the fact that this research might not in fact be valid because, or, or, or something you can extrapolate to any other population, uh, is a huge justice issue here because anything you develop out of it is not going to be useful to, you know, most of the world. Mm. Uh, and this is something that I think people are about to turn their, their minds to. So how, how do we start to fix it? I think we need to start training our graduate students to see the world. They, they you know, how many people in a lab have to focus on cancer? Right? <laughs> you know, I'm sure if you took a poll of every lab in Canada and the United States, you're going to get majority of the students focusing on cancer mm -hmm. uh, or MS, or some rare Diabetes. disease. Some... Yeah, diseases of the West, essentially, yes. right? Um, and so, you know, we need to get them thinking more about the world because, you know, they, they have talent, obviously. Uh, and what they're learning is not to fix a disease. It is they're learning methodologies and approaches 
for using science to fix problems. Mm-hmm. And they sh- I mean, I think if you, take, if you take away cancer and put something else in its place, these guys can fix it. Right. That would be an interesting Uh, experiment. And all the big labs just say, here's the deal. You cannot work on cancer for two years. And then if you're really into it, you can go to cancer. I would love to see that. You're right. I mean, it would force a shift because I would say probably half the research in the West is on cancer and because it's so visible. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's not to say cancer research is not important. No, of course. But but how many people have to be doing cancer research? And as you noted, for example, you know, malaria uh, is a is a is more problematic globally. Uh, and, and there's, you know, there's some studies now that are focused on malaria, you know, especially, uh, you know, gene drives, uh, mm-hmm. trying to sort of mm-hmm. uh, address that to that way. But again, so there's two ways to look at it. The first is, where are we putting our resources? I happen to think that um, biotechnology is starting to represent for me a bit of a myth, uh, you know, something that is, overblown and you know it's not really going to deliver the fixes that we're thinking it's going to it's not it's not going to be this revolution that's going to fix the world what's going to fix the world is attention to the to the to the little things right attention to things like food insecurity attention to things like poverty and um, you know not having economic means attention to um, you know um, not empowering women, you know, if, if we empower women, you know, we, we, we can make longer strides than we do now. Attention to child poverty, to child hunger, all of these things, uh, building health systems. Um, these are things that are going to fix the world. And I, and I wonder how many, how much resources are being devoted to that as opposed to this big biotechnology, uh, uh, you know, complex that we've, we've built. Mm. But there's a second issue, though, uh, which is that when we, in fact, do the, tech, do the science, and when we we do biomedicine and biotechnology, are we thinking about how we're going to apply? And, and how are we thinking about this? Because we need to be thinking about if you develop something, where who is it going to serve? What is your target condition? And who's going to buy from you? Uh, now, uh, maybe this is why people are going to cancer. If you develop a cure for cancer tomorrow, of course, you're going to have governments in the West uh, because it's a huge problem for us. You're going to have governments in the West paying you for it. But if you develop a cure for malaria, or sorry, a vaccine for malaria, uh, malaria is endemic in places where people don't have money to buy it from you. <laughs> are you. Are you going to have uh, industry supported? Are you going to have these governments paying for it? All these are factors mm-hmm. that determine what gets done. And I think we need to pay more attention to that. And you know, you don't want to say to a graduate student who has, you know, you know, probably has student loans, who has spent, you know, most of their lives, you know, trying to work to achieve something. Oh well, now is the time to start thinking about about the world and not about yourself. But it's it's a question worth asking. To what end? Who are we doing all of this for? Uh, and who is it going to benefit? And how do we allocate these resources in a way that that at least goes beyond uh, our immediate needs in the West to reach people in other populations. All right. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, yeah, you're right about the incentives. It seems like there's a lot of incentive in the pharmaceutical industry to cure cancer because of the money, right? Not so much maybe for the other diseases that are endemic in poor countries. Um, 
So, yes. I mean, I think that we're talking about fundamental issues with humankind, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what drives us as a society and capitalism in particular. But, I mean, you've, you've been in a lot of places. You practiced law in Nigeria before you came to Canada. Canada, much more permissive, I would say, in terms of like end-of-life care, cannabis, mm -hmm. and relative to the southern neighbor, the United States. H how would you compare the places you've been in terms of like ethically speaking is it relatively equal ground is ever are there agendas that are kind of hardwired in <laughs> culturally <laughs> and more broadly speaking because that's a bit cynical but are we getting right. better as a, so you've been in all these places are we getting better as a society at least in our recognition of these ethical questions and dilemmas and are, are do you think that we're moving towards because if you look at the news nowadays it, it i wouldn't i'm not that inspired at least in the United States, that we're moving towards something positive. I feel like there's a bit right. of a wax and a wane. Is ethics like that? Are you, is there like a degeneration of our ethical fabric as a culture and then it builds up and breaks down in your experience? Oh boy, that's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll get into it. So, so um, I, I certainly think um, we're facing a sort of a unique problem this time with um, with sort of mistrust or distrust of knowledge. Um, and this return to our bizarre instincts around facts and knowledge. Hmm. Uh, and I think that raises its own set of ethical issues uh, that I'll, I'll get into in, in a second. But, you know, let me start answering your question by reflecting on the places I've been and, you know, whether, you know, ethics is different in all these places and whether it's, you know, getting better or getting worse. Um, each society has its own unique set of uh, issues, and that comes with its own unique set of ethical questions that they're allowed to ask. So, you know, growing up in Nigeria and working there, uh, I certainly don't think there's a biotechnology industry that matches the kind that we have in Canada or the U.S. So, of course, the kind of issues that we think about in Nigeria uh, when it comes to health and health-related technologies are very different. So we're thinking about issues around, you know, um, brain drain is a big one. You know, Nigeria trains all these um, smart people and they just leave the country, you know, uh, one of them leave the country <laughs> in search of a, uh, of a better life elsewhere. Uh, and and so, so the country is just stuck in this um, uh, rut where... You know, you train, they leave, and and you go. You just keep training, and they keep leaving. And so, in, in a place like Nigeria, there's a huge focus on stopping brain drain. That has the it's a big issue for them. There are also issues around, um, you know, just trying to have a healthcare system. They're not even thinking about technological fixes now. Just let's just have a healthcare system. I, I saw a poll on Facebook the other day uh, where somebody asked uh, because I, I I believe there was an incident where in a hospital. Uh, they were looking for a defibrillator and they didn't have one. <laughs> so, so, so somebody asked on Facebook, uh, if, you, if you're a doctor working in Nigeria, uh, can you please take this poll and tell us if there's a defibrillator in your hospital? Oh, wow. that's, that's the level where they are operating. Th that study we did of, of countries affected by Ebola, uh, so Guinea, Liberia, uh, in, in the, during the first uh, 2013 to 2016 uh, crisis, those countries... Uh, we, we did a survey of the kind of medical equipment that they have in their hospitals, v virtually nothing, you know. So 
So these countries are thinking of different sets of issues, uh, not the kind that we, we concern ourselves with here. And when it comes to ethics of, of biomedicine, uh, they'll be thinking a, a, about things like, you know, when companies come and test drugs, mm -hmm. which is starting to happen a lot in these countries, they come and test drugs in these countries, uh, especially, you know, you know, drugs that they are not allowed to test hmm. in the West. They, you know, they come to test it in these countries and then they, they, they try to take advantage of lax regulations and lax systems. Uh, so for ex there, there's an example of, uh, I believe it was Pfizer that went to Nigeria uh, to, to test a drug uh, and they tested it on children and it ended up killing about 11 children. Oh uh, and there were huge issues about, you know, where do we sue Pfizer and what do we do about this? And, you know, of course, Pfizer is not a Nigerian-based company. So there's all of that. Uh, issues that are grounded in the reality of these countries. And then you come to a place like Canada, uh, and I find that there's a ton of focus uh, in Canada on issues around the ethics of protecting individuals from the harm posed by a system, uh, whether it's a health system or uh, whether it's a system of professionals providing them healthcare, or whether it's a system of, of, of professionals who are coming up with technologies uh, and doing research to try and improve the human condition. And, and, and you know, that's what much of, much of the ethics focuses on in this country. It's a different kind of thing. Uh, but of course, there are populations within Canada, you know, um, that face the same kind of issues that I described with Nigeria, you know, lack of a health system uh, that doesn't seem to get as much play. So if you think about uh, indigenous populations in, in Canada, again, that seems to be an issue that's in our blind spot. And we, now, you know, we, we turn not to look at it as closely as we look at things like consent, confidentiality. These are two big things over here. Uh, and issues about whether or not we're, we're moving the needle too far to change the human condition too quickly. Um, uh, and in, in the area of bi biomedicine and biotechnology, there's also an assisted reproduction, of course. There's also issues around, um, you know, do we allow certain kinds of practices and procedures um, that might affect individuals, uh, or do we just ban it? Uh, and one of the ones that I like to talk about, one of the ones that causes me, you know, um, um, a lot of concern and makes me really angry, uh, issues around how do we regulate what women can do reproductively uh, and how they can access reproductive services. So I don't know if you know this, but in Canada, there's a ban on commercial surrogacy for example, mm -hmm. you can't pay for surrogacy. There's a ban on on payment for um, for gametes, so you can't pay a woman to get her eggs. Uh, and I have some thoughts on that I like to share. Um, it's it's infuriating to me. But it, that's you know we want to protect the woman mm -hmm. from we want to protect women from all of these risks. Some of them imaginary, uh, in my view. Uh, uh, and there's sort of heavy focus on that uh, without thinking about really what implications of that will be uh, for both women and for the healthcare system in general. And then, of course, if you move to the U.S., you start to see a different kind of issue, which is sort of uh, this idea that science, and I think that's probably the only nation left in the world now where there's a belief that science and scientific research cannot be interfered with, hmm. right? Hmm. Um, but instead, what we're going to do is decide how we fund it, right? Hmm. Um, so we, we, you can do whatever you want to do, you know, so long, so long as you don't ask the government for money, if the government doesn't like it. Uh, and, and then lately with Trump, we're starting to see people say, well, what does knowledge mean? 
why do some people have um, the, the monopoly over knowledge and this creation? Why can't I be an authority unto myself mm -hmm. in terms of how I create knowledge, which I think is probably, in my view, the biggest threat to science today is this notion that science is not any different from what a layperson knows. Mm -hmm. And if I know it, surely it must be true. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's probably the biggest threat to science. And so all of these things are things that happen, you know, in different parts of the world to varying degrees. Um, and for people like me, picking what to focus on uh, is quite difficult. Uh, and there's a lot of people working in different areas. Uh, but I think much of the people who do the kind of work I do are still focused on the second category of problem, which is how do we protect the individual from the harms of the system? And I think we need to move away from that a little bit and start to think about, you know, how do we actually clean up? No, how do we actually sort of, again, establish the authority of science and the means to regulate it so that it gains that credibility back again and people don't think, you know, science is equivalent to, you know, things that people know that are counter-knowledge or counterfactual. Uh, and how do we care about problems that exist elsewhere in the world that science and technology cannot necessarily solve? Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, what I hear there in terms, and that is a very complete answer in terms of the differences in, in all the cultures, it's really fascinating. What I hear is that we're not necessarily getting better or worse, it's getting more complicated. <laughs> yeah, so it's a very complex uh, thing. Um, and the complexity is not helped by the fact that we now have the flow of information mm -hmm. with the internet and with, you know, um, air travel and information being able to get from one end of the world to another, that's just, it's just crazy how that has uh, exacerbated the complexity. It's just mm -hmm. raised it to a whole new level. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't know that we're ever getting back to simpler times. I think the complexity is going to keep increasing. And I think scientists and regulators and people like me are going to have to work within this complexity and try to make sense of all of this complexity. And that's not an easy thing for anyone to do. Now, I think scientists would like to, you know, wake up in the morning, as I said before, go to their labs and do whatever it is that they do. But it's not that easy anymore. Now they have to think about, uh, you know, how do we get funding for what we do? And how do we convince the funder that what we're doing is something that is not just scientifically beneficial, and ultimately beneficial to the society, but it's also not morally problematic. Mm -hmm. They have to convince a, a funder of that. They have to also convince a funder that, you know, this idea we have that we're doing basic science on is going to lead to this therapy down the road. Right. And we can show you now that we know that. And so give us money, um, you know, because this has translation potential. And I can tell you, you know, not many scientists who do work in the basic science area actually know this, but they have to promise that. <laughs> Uh, which is its own, you know, a piece of the complexity. Right. They also have to, you know, as I'm suggesting, think about fairness and justice issues. They have to think about impact on future generations. You don't want to create something that complicates life for the future. That's what's implicated in, in, in Hayes' work. You know, if you change the germline, how's that going to affect future generations? Mm -hmm. They have to think about 
um, you know, uh, are we paying attention to all the ethics around this? So all of this complexity is what I think many scientists today find very distressing. And it's leading to this sort of, you know, reaction from them where they go, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. Um, so I think we're actually, you know, we're getting, they're getting an ethics overload and they might not be listening to um, as much ethics uh, as they need to, to be able to do their work. Yeah, well, I, it's, I think it's definitely a positive development that we're getting ethics in the conversation because I could say myself, from my own experience, the ethics, and I say this, I'm embarrassed to say it's always just been an obstacle. It's been, the IRB has been a committee that you get past, you know, you convince them that, you know, you're going to be responsible, but you don't really consider it. It's just an obstacle. But I think now, nowadays, the idea that we need to invite an ethicist to the table in the research design, I think someone like yourself, I mean, and why not, right? We could use all the collaborators, all the different perspective, all the insight, it only makes the science better. So, uh, yeah, I think we have a a lot of work to do, but having you at the table is going to be a big benefit. Now, moving the end of our interview away from the ethics and the science into a little peripheral questions first. Uh, what's a non-science book that you're reading or have read recently that is awesome and that you'd recommend to the listening audience? Right. I have it right here. <laughs> it's a uh, war light by Michael on uh, It's a Canadian author. Um, he, your your listeners might be familiar with him. He wrote The English Patient. Ah. Yeah, which became a, a Hollywood blockbuster. Hmm. Uh, I think it won an Oscar as well. Uh, but I'm a big fan of Ondaatje, and uh, I've called this my summer of Ondaatje. Uh, I'm, I'm attempting to read all these books that I haven't read. I have another one here called In the Skin of a Lion. And one more in my bag uh, <laughs> called A Neil's Ghost. Uh, uh, the thing I like about Ondaatje is his ability um, to make you feel as if you're living in the in the prose he's creating. Um, he, he writes in a way that makes a story very real. Um, even if you're somebody who would never have lived in that context, you start to see yourself in it. Um, and this one that I'm reading is about um, uh, a family made up of... Uh, Spies. <laughs> hmm. uh, uh, it's, set in, it's set in England, and um, the parents who became members of uh, the, the spy service in England uh, after the Second World War, I believe, uh, and uh, the parents then abandoned their children and left them with a guardian, uh, so they could go do this. And it, it talks about the feelings that the children had about being abandoned and how they came to terms with the fact that their parents chose. Uh, to serve the account, mm. serve the country uh, instead of take care of them, uh, and there's a, a ton in there about you know the feeling of alienation that one uh, feels uh, when you know you lose sort of parental attachment or contact, or, or when you realize that you're not really as important as you <laughs> ought to be to your parents, uh, and this sort of the sense of loss that comes with that. Uh, the sense of abandonment and how you then take that and channel that into adulthood and deal with that as a person. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly a story. I mean, I, 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 I wasn't born to spy parents, uh, but I, I, as somebody who has dealt with, you know, parents and all the feelings you get from trying to understand how your parents relate to you and what that means for you, 
uh, as an adult. Uh, and I was also as someone who uh, lives very far from my parents who are still in Nigeria. In fact, uh, my, um, my original family is still in Nigeria. Um, uh, and sort of dealing with that, uh, there's a lot in this book that sort of speaks to me about that. Uh, and that's what I like about Undigest Prose. It's so real. Uh, even if it's a story about, you know, romance, love. And, and for those who have watched English Patient, they'll notice you sort of identify with the characters in such a way that you start to feel that you're one of them. So that's my that's my non-science book I'm reading on Dante's Warlight. Well, it's non-science books. It's a summer of Andache. And <laughs> yeah. it's not surprising to hear because as you describe it, it's, he has a real talent for uh, letting the reader embody someone else's frame of mind. And I think as an ethicist, that's probably what you do much of your day is try and embody different perspectives and, and try and give them equal, equal share. Um, all right, next, we're going to do a few fill in the blanks. Uh, first, the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is. Oh, I'll say is from my perspective, it is not Einstein. It is this huge issue we have with unproven stem cell therapies. Mm -hmm. I'll say that's the biggest thing in stem cell right now. The, the reason I say that is that it actually is one issue that I think might derail the science. Mm -hmm. um, if people lose trust in stem cell therapies, then I don't know what all the science is for. Uh, and what we're seeing now is some early to market um, um, therapies uh, which, of course, uh, are not backed by any scientific evidence, and which, of course, um, don't work. Uh, but the public has bought into it. And I think it's only a matter of time before we get uh, a really sort of tragic situation that derails the science. This happened with gene therapy uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, there was a death of a, a patient in a gene therapy trial, and I think that set back gene therapy. Um, uh, uh, but that was even from a, a legitimate trial. And now we're starting to see all these uh, uses that are not legitimate. I think that that's a, a big issue uh, for stem cell science. And my pick for the biggest thing in the field now, it's a non-science thing, but I think scientists need to care about it. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. And it's we're talking about these unregulated stem cell clinics. It's adult stem cells, but that's the thing. That's the catch when you're in the field. The stem cell is a stem cell. So it doesn't matter when you work on People hear about these unfortunate consequences in these right. clinics of older women go going blind with the stem cell right. injections. So, like, this is real. Like you said, this isn't just promoting unproven science. It's actually leading to some negative consequences that have the potential to really uh, set back the field. So, yeah, I agree. It is the biggest thing. And the, the embryonic pluripotent stem cell people. Right think that they're insulated because they're kind of different. But, you know, as far as the lay public is concerned, guys, a stem cell is a stem cell. So, But there's, a, there's another layer to that, too. The fact that uh, clinics, I mean, the clinics operating in North America, for the most part, do autologous stem cell therapies. But this issue started outside of North America. Uh, and in clinics around the world, they provide all kinds of stem cells, you know, <laughs> everything <laughs> from plant stem cells to embryonic stem cells to IPS cells. They, they really don't have any... Um, and they don't distinguish from one stem cell to the other. So I think it's a, it's a problem that affects every researcher 
uh, in the field. Yeah, I've seen those. My my wife has a bunch of uh, skin care that has plant stem cells in it. I, right. <laughs> I've tried to disabuse her of the uh, her belief, but, you know, you got to pick your battles. All right, next. I would never have gotten to this point in my career without... Timothy Caulfield. Hmm. Timothy Caulfield, an individual. Yeah. That's very specific. Please yeah. elaborate. Uh, so uh, I didn't train in this area. Um, I I did my master's degree in legal theory um, on some very esoteric <laughs> topic. <laughs> uh, and uh, I interviewed for a job in this law school, which I didn't get. But someone on the hiring committee uh, felt I should have got the job. So they took my CV to Tim and said, hire him. So Tim gives me a call. Uh, I, I go into his office and it he wants to know if I know anything about stem cells. I, like, I don't even know what those are. Uh, and this was in 2005. Uh, so, so I say I don't, I don't have any clue what that is. Uh, and then we spend the rest of the interview talking about uh, music and, and starting a, a now uh, decades-old debate about, about whether the Beatles are the greatest band on earth or not. <laughs> I, think, I think not. He thinks they are. <laughs> uh, and so he, he hired me and gave me a chance um, uh, to work in this field. And, and, you know, there are a lot of things, obviously, that have happened in my career that I, I can say have been uh, very instrumental to to me getting here today. But Tim is uh, the single uh, most influential and most important factor. He, he didn't just hire me. He was also a very good mentor. Uh, and, you know, he's my pick. A nod to Tim. You did yeah. it, man. You did it. Without <laughs> you, he'd be nothing. You should garnish his wages a little bit. Uh, next, when it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless. Oh, there's a lot of things there, but hmm. um, I, I'm going to have to go with treading water. Really? Yeah. You, you sink like a stone. I sink like a stone. <laughs> uh, and I'm terrified of this because I've had a near drowning incident. Um, so, you know, I, I, Never learned to swim as a kid because, again, I grew up in Nigeria, and that's not something that, you know, you don't have swimming lessons. But hmm. I did learn to to do some swimming moves by watching YouTube videos when I moved to Canada and had access to a swimming pool. And so that means I can actually swim very effectively so long as my feet touch the ground, <laughs> <laughs> so long as I'm swimming in shallow water. But if you throw me into a pool, where you know my my head is not above water, mm -hmm. uh, I'm pretty much guaranteed to to die. <laughs> I'm gonna drown. <laughs> so I've had to learn this, but you know, treading water has to be up there among one of the hardest things one can learn as an adult. Mm. Um, in part because you're terrified right. of you know what might happen if you don't do it effectively, uh, and I think it's that tension between success and failure that. Mm. <laughs> That makes it an impossible thing to learn. So anyway, that's my pick. Well, we'll keep you in the shallows, my man. We gotta keep you on <laughs> <Yeah>. this earth. <laughs> All right, last. If we usually say if the lab, but in this case, if the legal office catches fire and I have a chance to bring one thing on my way out, it would be. <laughs> well, I try not to keep anything in my office hmm. that I'll miss if there was a fire and I had to get out. Um, but since you asked the question and I'm looking around my office now, what would I grab 
from this office. I think you definitely need one of those Andace books. Uh, that's a one candidate. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I'll, I'll take an Andace book for sure. Um, but I think, you know, I, there's a number of things in my office that my kids made for me hmm. that I'll hate to lose, including this, which I'm sure every parent gets. Uh, some, you know. Tchotchke. Uh, yeah. Um, so I, I think I'll just grab the, the very personal items in the office that my kids made for me. Uh, since those are irreplaceable, um, everything else I can replace. Uh, but these ones, you know, they're gone. And my kids are not going to be... She she made this when she was uh, four years old. She's not going to be four again. So <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that. that's peak creativity, man. You got to keep the four, <laughs> the, the four-year-old art. That's real. And I'm, by yeah. the way, she would never let you hear the end of it if you left right. that priceless artwork <laughs> in the office. So, yes, correct answer. Uvak uh, Ogbugu, this is a really amazing hang. Thank you for doing it. It's atypical. We got you in, into this scientist, you know, set here, but you really illuminated us on all things ethical. We appreciate your time, my man. Thanks, Elon. It was a pleasure. All right, guys, that brings us to the end. It was a different type of show today. I really enjoyed it. Talking about the whys, talking about the whats. What do we do? Oh, you know, we're in an echo chamber. We all know that the, the goal is the experimental goal, right? But, you know, why? The why is not often thought about. And I think that uh, Ubaka gave us a lot of insight into that, forcing us to really reflect and think. I think we should do that a little bit more often. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes for this one. That includes an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. That's at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at StemCellPodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We got to get ethical in our work, guys. And I think we got the roadmap now talking to Dr. Bogu. Let's try and pay attention. 